Yeah. As I was thinking about these two videos this week, um, the first thought that crossed my mind is that there's some men that have high voices. <laughs> really high voices. Um, and evidently, generations don't change that, right? <laughs> it's just, just there, pretty, pretty impressively high. Uh, what do you call the hairstyle that is like buzzed all the way around and then is combed over? What, th there's got to be a name for that today, there's, or, or something close. I'm saying that because, no, 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 don't, don't go there. Because, listen, because, because how many of you had mullets back in the day? Okay, so yeah, thank you. <laughs> Way back. They're coming back, aren't they? <laughs> Something similar to the mullet. Um, you, know, you look at that last video and you see the, you see the, the mullet kind of look, and, and it, it takes you back to a specific place and time, doesn't it? Uh, the hairstyles change. The, uh, the, the, the clothing definitely changes. The way, the way, we, uh, the way we portray ourselves changes. Uh, just real quickly, the first one was a medley, the second one was the Easter song. Which, uh, which one do you like better? How many of you vote number one? How many of you vote number two? That's actually pretty evenly split. Uh, and interestingly to me, let me do that one more time. How many of you like the first one better? Okay, I'm, oh, hang on, just, just stay there for a second. I got a lot, okay. How many like the second one better? Okay, I think the first one wins by a little bit. But interestingly, it doesn't seem to be generational. I, I, I would have thought there would have been people that would have said, oh yeah, the 80s. <laughs> but, but it doesn't seem to have been that way. All right. We, we are all, you can get that PowerPoint up whenever you're ready. We are all... Um, uh, deeply impacted by different things. How many of you would say that music has the ability to move you and move you powerfully? Are you one of those? It doesn't seem that everybody has that same level of drivenness by music, that music uh, uh, motivates them or moves them in the same way. But I think there's a lot of us that would say that music has a tremendous power to motivate us or to move us, to stir us. Um, there are songs that will bring me to tears completely apart from the lyrics, just the music, just the music in and of itself. And it's not necessarily sad music. In fact, often it's not sad music at all. There's just something about the beauty of it that gets me, and I get caught up in it, and it just brings tears to my eyes. And I, I, I don't know how to explain it. I have heard musicians say that there are specific ways of doing that, that certain combinations affect people in certain ways. And, and I guess if, if that's your thing and you really know music well, then you can arrange songs or write songs that have that ability. God bless you. But, um, but I'm one of those who knows next to nothing about why and just know that it is powerfully affecting me for some reason. And I, I respond to it very, very much. 
We have um, come to refer to music as the language of the soul. The language of the soul. It doesn't affect everybody the same way, but I think it is pretty universally impactful. And the fact that, that we have come to refer to music as the language of the soul seems to suggest that many people, if not most people, have some kind of an extremely emotive response to music. Uh, we could have said that lots of other things are the language of the soul. Um, maybe maybe uh, some form of art, some other form of art, painting. But I got to tell you that I think a lot, I, I don't know, I, I, I guess I feel like in order to be deeply affected by most paintings, you kind of have to have some level of expertise about that form of art. You know, I, I see some paintings and I say, oh, that's a nice painting. Uh, I could never do that. There's a lot of skill there. But it doesn't move me the way music would, would move me. The language of the soul. How many of you have ever found times when hearing a certain song transported you to a different place in a different time? Ever happened? You hear a song and instantaneously you're somewhere else. It might only be for a second, but bang, you're somewhere else for a moment because of the, the powerful uh, uh, memory that it evokes. By the way, um, uh, there has been studies done that of all your senses, the one that is, I, I think if I remember the correctly, the one that is most powerfully tied to memory is the sense of smell. Smells have the ability to take people back. You know, you smell, and for me, there's a couple places. I'm in grandmom's basement. I don't know how that happens, but bang, I'm just there. Because that smell so incredibly and powerfully evokes a memory. Music has that ability as well. The ability to transport us to other, uh, other places and times. For some of us, there's a, a music that marks happy times or that marks sad times, right? That, that marks, that you can't hear that. And it has nothing to do with the song in and of itself necessarily. The song can be a very happy song, but it, it was popular at a time that was painful for you and so you hear it, and it takes you to a place that you don't want to go back to. It evokes an emotion that you don't want to, to have to feel in that moment. Maybe it takes you to times that you wish you could revisit, or times that you would just want to forget, if you possibly could. Music has the ability to both express a mood and to change a mood. I will never forget my mother as a, as a young teenager being in a church service. And, and I, was, I was, for a variety of reasons that I don't need to go into, I was down that day and I had zero desire to worship. I was not going to worship. And I remember just sitting there while everybody else was singing and my mom saying to me, stand up and sing. And I said, I don't want to stand up and sing. And she said, stand up and sing. And I said, I don't want to stand up and sing. And she said, stand up and sing. <laughs> so I stood up, and she caught herself quickly, and she whispered in my ear. She said, sing. 
that'll make you feel better. And I remember standing there, kind of mumbling, very grudgingly, because I knew what would happen to me if I didn't sing, right? And yet, as I sang, can I tell you something? This is part of the power of rehearsing the Psalms. That as we sing, as we, as we reflect, there's something profound. And again, maybe for you it happens in a different ways. Maybe you need to pick up your Bible and read the Psalms. But there's something powerful about those words that when we sing them, it's like they're coming out of our mouths the same time they're going into our ears. And they reinforce truth powerfully to us. They reinforce things in a, in a very strong way. And, and I just remember that as I sang, bit by bit, my mood completely changed. And, and I learned something that day about, about, yes, the power of music, but more deeply about the power of worship, about the power of singing God's praises, of choosing to sing God's praises. Do I always do it? No, I don't always do it. Should I? Yeah, probably I should, right? Uh, but there's something powerful about entering into the praises of God. Music has that kind of power associated with it. In fact, in the scripture, we're told that in one instance that, that David was called to play music because Saul was possessed by, by a tormenting spirit. He had an oppressive spirit that came on him and that when David would play his music, the spirit would lift. That there was something in the music that David played that would lift that heaviness off of, off of King Saul. By the way, um, how many of you have, have found that you remember words set to music far better than you remember words that have no music attached to it, right? That you can come up with lyrics like this, but memorizing Bible verses is a little bit more difficult. Sometimes, just as a memory tool, the music is so powerful for us. Music has always been a vital part of the worship of God's people. We sang this morning, Crown him, uh, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. It's an older hymn from, I should have looked up the date. I don't remember. Let me see real quickly if the hymnal says uh, 367. I don't think there's any dates on here. Uh, the music is from 1708. 1708. So that music's been around for a while. You listen to the song that we sang, that Easter song. Man, that, that song, um, second chapter of Acts did a version. Keith Green did a version. It seemed like back in the day, everyone was doing a version of the Easter song. And then you hear the more, the more modern songs, the more recent songs like Living Hope that have, uh, that have become part of our, of our uh, modern church experience together. Music is just a powerful way that God's people have always employed to, to offer praises to God. It's always been a part of the church's experience. In fact, right from the beginning... We have looked at this text before, but 
uh, it, and it may seem stubborn since we're in a, a series on First and Second Timothy to, to, to have to stay there, but we're going to stay there. I'd like you to turn to Second Timothy. And I want to read from Second Timothy one of the hymns. You remember that earlier we looked at some of the hymns in First in and Second Timothy. I want to look at one of them specifically that we didn't look at in particular, didn't cover the details of. And I want us to look at it this morning on this Resurrection Sunday and consider what it is that this song of the church would teach us. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to read verses 11 through 13. 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I want to work through this this ancient song this morning. And for the first little bit, it's not going to sound much like a Resurrection Sunday message, but just bear with me for a few minutes. It will definitely become a Resurrection Sunday message. This is an ancient hymn of the church. It's a doctrinal statement that the church united around in their singing. It was, it was doctrine set to music. Paul called it a trustworthy statement. That is something that was worthy of placing your confidence in. You could believe it. That this statement was true. That it was something that you could count on. And so the church sang this as a doctrinal statement. And by the way, it's a doctrinal statement that we should affirm today. It's a doctrinal statement that we should affirm today. Let's go through the four parts of this hymn for a few moments this morning. I want to start at the end and work our way back to the beginning. The hymn ends with, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's talk for a second about faithfulness this morning in verse 13. Faithfulness. The first thing to see here, to note here, is that Christ in his divinity, is not like us. He's not like us. If we are faithless, and we have the ability to be faithless, he remains faithful. He remains faithful. That is, he never fails to be anything but faithful. He's always faithful. He's not like us. He's not like us. You see, there's a way in which we, we understand this statement as, uh, as a, a way of expressing the fact that Jesus Christ was not just a man, although he was in his earthly form a man, that he was something more than just an ordinary man, just, just a man like any one of us, that in his divinity, his, his divine nature makes him today something that you and I are not. That he is completely faithful. That he is always faithful. Fact of the matter is, I don't care who it is, there will be, there will be a time 
when you will find that a person, no matter how noble they are, no matter how consistent they are, they cannot understand you in a particular circumstance, or they cannot be with you in a particular circumstance, or that they will flat out let you down in a particular circumstance. That, that people do not have the ability to be 100% faithful the way the Lord Jesus is. Jesus here is described as faithful. That is, he is different from us. He is categorically different from us. The second thing that we see about this phrase is that this passage is written to and is sung by believers. They were singing this about themselves. If we are faithless, he is faithful. If we are faithless. Now, pause here for a second. This is believers singing. If we are faithless. Uh, in what sense can a believer sing, if I am faithless, you are faithful? Right? You can think of the unbelieving world where they're faithless. They are faithless. Believers are not faithless. We are people of faith. But this early doctrinal statement was believers singing, if we are faithless. If we are faithless, well, how can that be true of us? How is it possible that we as believers might be faithless? Well, let me run through a few ways that we as believers can be faithless. One way is this word, this awful word, apostasy. Apostasy. That is, that we could turn away from the faith. That we can abandon the faith. Now, I will... I will, I, I said this a couple weeks ago, that this is not, we're not intended, uh, we're not intending this morning to talk about is it possible for a person to fall away from Christ after they've been devoted to Christ. We're, we're not answering that question this morning, but let's just put it out there as a theoretical possibility, okay? That a person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ might abandon their faith and become faithless, become faithless. Um, by the way, let me just pause here for a second. This has become a little bit of a thing in our day. Um, if, you, if you look up deconstruction, people that are raised in, in the Christian faith, that have been intimately involved in the Christian faith, in promoting the Christian faith, in pastoring churches in the Christian faith, in writing books on behalf of the Christian faith, have experienced something in the Christian faith that has eventually led them to turning away from the Christian faith. And they describe it as, as a period of deconstruction in their life. That I had, my whole life was built around the Christian faith and I have gone through a process of deconstructing everything that my life had once been built upon. It's a terrible thought. It's a terrible thought. Because if it's real, it's an example of a modern-day apostasy. 
of a turning away from the faith, of, of salvation once received by the grace of God, forfeited, turned away from, cast aside. Well, let's just, let's just throw it out there as a possibility that this word faithless could, could mean apostasy if we are faithless. Let me just say one thing about this very quickly that I, I, well, it could be abused, but it can also be appreciated this morning. How many of you know that according to the Bible, we're not saved by good works? Not what saves us. You can't be good enough. If you're a good enough person, if you're a good, if you're a good neighbor, you're nice to the people that are around you, that doesn't save you. We're not saved by good works. Well, the, the, the flip side of that is if we're not saved by good works, we don't apostatize by bad works. It's not like if I sin enough times once I'm a believer, that's it, God will eventually get fed up with me and throw me out. That's not the way this works. The danger of living a life of sin is that it turns your heart off towards God and it leads you down a road toward unbelief. That's the danger of sin. The danger of sin is not that the sin in and of itself can make you unsaved, but the sin will desensitize you to the things of God. It will turn you off to the things of God. It will lead you one step at a time down a road that says something like, I don't want to live for God anymore. I want to do my own thing. I reject. I don't believe anymore. If apostasy is a possibility, apostasy would not be a, a I committed a sin or even I committed a lot of sins. It would be a I reject Jesus Christ. I refuse Jesus Christ. Just to make that clear, if this kind of apostasy is possible, so a true turn from faith would mean that the Holy Spirit of God would leave a person because they have rejected the life of God's Spirit within them that came to them through Jesus Christ. That's one possibility. But let's go to a much more, a much more certain possibility, a much more, certainly, a much more common experience. And that would be that we don't always live out our faith in trustful obedience to the one who saved us. We don't always do that. Sometimes we're faithless. Sometimes we're faithless. Oh, listen, let me give the silliest of examples and then we'll just give a, a more serious example. A silly example would be um, I'm driving down the road, someone cuts me off, and for the next 15 seconds, I behave in a completely unchristian manner. A.W. Tozer used to say, no believer can sin without becoming a temporary atheist. You have to put God out of your mind, right? In that moment, you're faithless. In that moment, you have turned away from the knowledge of God's presence in your life in that moment. You kind of ignore him. You, you put him to the side. You shove him away so that you can do things that you would never do if you were abiding in his presence in the moment. It's a moment of temporary faithlessness. 
we sometimes fail to live in trustful obedience. Sometimes suffering takes people to this place, a much deeper experience, where deep suffering takes them to a place where, God, this is just too hard for me to do. I, I don't want to do it anymore. And it becomes a temptation to say, I will no longer be faithful to the thing I know you, God, want me to do. Why? Because I just don't want to do it anymore. I'm tired of this. Or it hurts too bad. I don't want to be obedient in this. It's a matter of being faithless in that moment. Now, please hear this. Well, let me just stop and say, that failure to live out our faith obediently and trustful obedience in the moment is a faithlessness that we all know something about. Amen? We've all been guilty of it one time or another. We've all entered into that one time or another, every single one of us. Now, the fact is that Jesus remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Let me just pause here for one more second. Um, you know, there have been all sorts of funny kinds of conversations that people have had about what it means that God can do anything, that God is omnipotent, that he can do anything. For example, um, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Well, that's kind of a self-defeating proposition. Either he can make a rock so big that there's something he can't do, he can't lift it, or he can't make a rock that big, right? One of those catch-22 kind of a things. Can he make a square circle? Believe it or not, these are things that philosophers spend lots of time on, have written pages on. You know, this kind of stuff is very easily answered by one simple phrase in the Bible. All of those suppositions are nonsense. Why? Because God can't deny himself. It's very simple. He can't deny himself. What does that mean? It means simply this. It means that God does not act in ways that are self-contradictory. He does not act in ways. So let me just say this openly. I affirm that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and I affirm that there are things that God cannot do. Why can't he do them? It's not because he lacks power. It's because he can't violate himself. He's perfect. That's why God can't lie. He can't lie. Why can't he lie? Because he can't deny himself. He is truth. See, the inability to lie is not a lack of power. It's the power to remain true to oneself. He is always true to himself. The second thing that we see in this song is this, this matter of denial. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Well, what does this mean? If we deny him, he also will deny us. Well, first of all, it's a, it's a phrase that is taken directly from the teachings of Jesus. Jesus used these exact words in Matthew 10, 33, and in Luke 12, 9. He, he made a clear statement, if you deny me, 
I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Let me say what this does not mean. The first thing is it does not mean he's not going to deny us in the sense that he will refuse us entry into heaven. That's not what this is about. Well, if you deny me, I will deny you. That is, I won't let you into my heaven. That's not what he's talking about here. In fact, there's something, something profound here that we just need one second on, and that is this, that every single one of us as believers is going to stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account for the lives that we lived. When it says that if we deny him, he will deny us, it is a reference to denying us the kinds of privileges and rewards that we could have gained but will forfeit because we were unfaithful to him, because we denied him. Now, you may be tempted to think that's not a big deal. You may be tempted to think, well, as long as I get into heaven, it doesn't much matter. The New Testament, however, makes it clear that this moment is going to be a big deal. All right, since I, since I took you back to the 80s for a second, let me take you back a little further. How many of you remember the, uh, the tracks of the 1970s? The tracks. Remember the... How many remember the ones that were the little booklets that were like cartoon form? They're about 10 pages long or something. You remember those? There was one specific one. We had a whole bunch of them. But there was one that I will never forget. It was called, This Is Your Life. Does anybody remember that specific one? Here's the way it went. It was a little tract that depicted Judgment Day as... You standing there before God with a giant movie screen. And your life gets replayed on the movie screen. Exposed. Every bit of it. Um, How many of you, just thinking about that, would say, you know, that's a little squirmy. A little squirmy. If on a giant screen, your whole life were replayed. Um, How many of you have some things back there that you would not want to have broadcast on a screen for everybody to see? Now, the point is this. Uh, I'm not suggesting that that's exactly how it's going to be. But I am suggesting this. The Apostle Paul talks about the seriousness of the fact that one day we're going to stand before Christ and we're going to give an account for all the works we have ever done, whether they be good or evil. And what this phrase is teaching us is that if we, if we deny Christ, He will deny us before our Father. That is, We will be denied privileges and rewards that we could have had. That some of us will have no reward because of our unfaithfulness to Christ. Now, that being said, let me give you a bit of good news. Um, I'm going to take that off for one second. I don't know if anybody else thinks this way. Uh, How many of you are familiar with Voice of the Martyrs? 
You, tell, you get these stories of believers who suffer for their faith. Can I ask you a question? How many of you have, have ever wondered how many Christians have cracked under severe enough suffering? You ever wondered that? How many believers have ever come to the point where they've said, I'll say whatever you want me to say? You ever wondered? You know, there's a Bible precedent for that, isn't there? There's a Bible precedent for that. It was Peter who, after proclaiming to the Lord Jesus, I would never deny you, I'm ready to go with you to death, that all it took was the pressure of, of public exposure for him to say, well, I, that's not true. It was the public exposure that was tied to the fear of, what will they do to me if they find out I'm one of his followers? Now, he wasn't under any physical torture at all at the moment. It was just the threat of it, the possibility of it, that when they asked him if he had known Jesus or been with Jesus, he said, no, I don't know the man. I don't know him at all. I don't, I don't even know who you're talking about. And then something like, I swear, I don't know who you're talking about, says that with oaths, he denied Jesus. Here's the great news. Here's the great news. Peter denied Jesus three times, but then he repented and had the opportunity to confess Jesus three times. The fact of the matter is that repentance and a renewal to faithfulness, please hear the way I'm saying this, repentance and renewal to faithfulness turns denial into an event, not the defining mark of a person's life. In other words, to have denied Christ once does not make you a denier that will be denied before the Father someday. Repentance has the ability to restore us to the position of a faithful believer. Now, any truth can be abused. So you can sit there and say, well, I can just deny Jesus and deny Jesus and repent. Please hear this. God sees through the games we play. He knows the sincere from the insincere. The fact of the matter, however, is that if we fail and if we deny, we have an advocate with the Father so that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness and we are restored to the position of a faithful follower of Christ with all the privileges and rewards that the future holds for us. Thank God for that. That failing or denying once does not disqualify you and make you a denier with a capital D. You've been labeled with the scarlet letter. Thank God that's not the case. Please note, however, that the ability to deny is an ability that we human beings have. You can deny Christ. You can deny Christ. I can deny Christ. It is possible for us 
human beings to deny Christ. That is, we are not forced or coerced into obedience or faithfulness. The fact that God is God and He is sovereign over our lives does not change the fact that I can rebel against Him and do what I want. does not change that fact. I have the ability to resist, to resist Almighty God. I have that ability. You have that ability. If we deny Him, something we can do. If we deny Him. All right? Let's go to the beginning. Let's go to the very beginning. And here's where we start getting closer to a proper resurrection message. The first, uh, the first line in the song is, if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we died with Him. Look at this idea of death for a second. Each one of these statements... In, these, uh, in this song begins with the word if. It's been referred to as the biggest little word in the English language. If. Why? Because everything that follows depends on one thing that comes first. If. If. You know, if is maybe the greatest avoidant word ever invented, right? Well, if I'm not too tired, I will. Well, how do you define too tired, right? I mean, that's a built-in, I can do it if I want to, and I don't have to if I don't want to, because I can always say I was just too tired. If, if. It's this, it's this enormous word that everything hangs upon. Everything that comes next hangs on it. Death is an accomplished Spiritual fact. Please hear this. We have to understand, if we died with him, and the understanding of the believer is this, and we have. And we have. Romans 6, Galatians 2.20 teaches us that we have died with Christ. That we have been crucified with Christ. There is a sense in which death applies to every single one of us. Um, listen, the next time you're tempted to sin, how, how do dead people respond to temptation? If you poke a dead person, what do they do? Do you know uh, men... Or, 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 yeah, I shouldn't say men because I've had several of my daughters that have been successful hunters. What, what are we taught about how to identify whether or not a deer is dead? Uh, yeah, you could do that. You know what the easiest way to do is? Poke it. Where? In the eye. Take a stick, walk up. And just touch it. You know why? There's nothing alive that can get poked in the eye and not blink or move. You poke it in the eye, it doesn't move. It is thoroughly and everlastingly expired. Okay? It's over. It's over. You know why? Dead things 
can't be poked and respond. And the scripture tells us we are dead with Christ. We're crucified with Christ. The next time you're tempted, if, if in that moment you were, you were to say to yourself, if I were to respond to this temptation as a dead person, how would I respond to it? And the answer is, I wouldn't respond to it at all. I'm crucified with Christ. Now, the fact that there's a desire that is stirred in you by that temptation, let me tell you what the battle of temptation is. The battle of temptation is that it is trying to convince you not to live out what God says you are. You're a dead person. You're a dead person. The temptation is to refuse to take God at his word at that moment and say, no, I want to live my own life the way I want to live it. The, the, the teaching of Scripture is that we are dead people. But the, the, the obvious and maybe in some ways unfortunate thing is that there's another sense in which while we are dead people, the New Testament also teaches us that we have to take up our cross daily. That is, that we have to reckon, that's the, the word that is used in the king, reckon ourselves dead. That is, oh, it's a terrible truth, but I don't have to live dead if I don't want to live dead. I don't have to take up my cross, deny myself. I don't have to die the death on a daily basis if I don't want to. This is why we're told in Matthew 16 that we have to take up our cross, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. There's a kind of death that is something that has to be appropriated every day of our lives, that you have to take upon yourself every day of your life. And so death, according to Scripture, is two things. It is, one, an accomplished fact, and two, it is an experience that you have to embrace. It's both of those things. It's an accomplished fact that every day you have to be willing to choose. Sometimes, moment by moment, I'll take it. I'm a dead man. It's both of those things. Here's the thing that is maybe so, so difficult for us to grasp. Spiritually, the result of death is life. And here's what I mean by that. The fact that you're a dead person means that when you eventually die physically, you're going to live forever. All dead people, according to the fact, if you have been crucified with Christ, if you have believed in him, you have entered into his experience, if you have died with Christ, you're going to live eternally. It's the way it is. But there's another side to this that we don't always grasp very well. And that is this, that, that when I embrace death on that daily basis, deny myself and take up my cross, that's when I enter into what the Bible calls abundant life. Abundant life. So let me say it this way. You see, when, when God 
forbids us sin, for example, we human beings tend to think of that as a, a restriction imposed on us that we're not really happy about. The truth is, it's an instruction for life that is the best way to live. So let me, let me use a very specific example. Thou shalt not commit adultery. God is not by that command trying to torture you into a miserable life of monogamy. That's not what's going on here. What he's saying is, the best life you could possibly live is a life that is found being faithful to your spouse. We've got a modern phrase for that. Everybody knows what it is. Happy, happy, right? Happy wife, happy life, right? You, listen, you, you, you do something that is unfaithful, it's going to bring a consequence. The pleasure of the moment is not worth the price you're going to pay. And the price is coming. It's coming, right? So the fact is that when I deny myself and I take up my cross and I follow Christ, when I live obediently to Him, it opens the door to living the best life you could possibly live right now. The most healthy life you could live right now. The most profitable life you could live right now. It's the most rewarding life you could live right now. I, listen, I, I never cease to marvel um, while, while uh, our media keeps putting pictures in front of us of the most attractive people on planet Earth, let's just say Hollywood types, that always have a smile on their face and they're having a great time. And their lives are a succession of... of destruction, it's the lie that says their life's better than yours. And the fact of the matter is it's not. It's not. Abundant life, a life that is lived out enjoying the blessing of God because of faithfulness to Him. Yes, it will mean denying yourself some things. And yes, it's the best life you could possibly live. Yes, it's the best life you could possibly live. This is, this is choosing death in order to enjoy life. Real quickly, one last illustration. Uh, I know no one will relate to this. Husbands and wives, how many of you have ever been in a fight? I know that Christians don't have fights. Okay? You've had, yeah. Noel just said this, intense fellowship. <laughs> we, we have all kinds of euphemisms that we use. Intense fellowship. It was a fight, okay? It's an argument. How many of you have ever had a fight and you did not want to give in? Anybody? How many of you, thank you, just once. How many of you have ever chosen in that moment not to give in? 
How many of you ever enjoyed the outcome of not giving, not giving in? How'd that work out for you? Right? You see, the fact of the matter is, the sooner you die the death, the sooner you step back into abundant life. When you look at yourself and you say, you know what, what am I fighting over here? What is the thing that I'm holding on to so tightly? You know, people, people end in divorce court by one refusal to die after another. They call it irreconcilable differences. It's a euphemism for uncontrolled selfishness. Irreconcilable differences are really two people that refuse to budge. Because the fact of the matter is, every married couple has differences that they're not going to agree on. And they've got to figure out a way to live life together despite them. You see, there's an abundant life on the other side of laying down your own life, dying the death, and saying, I'm not going to fight for what I want for the rest of time and eternity. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. And here's the beauty of the resurrection. My brothers and sisters, you have the ability to experience a life that will, that will rise up within you on the other side of death, a life that is deeply satisfying, profoundly joyful, and please hear this, and supremely powerful. And supremely powerful. Now, look back at this text with me. If you didn't open it before, I want to ask you to open your Bibles to, to 2 Timothy and I just want to read the verses that come before this, and then I'm going to close with the last phrase in this, in this song. Listen to this. If you read back, we started at verse 11. If you read back at verse 7, here's what it says. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory." Here's what Paul is saying. It's something like this. He's teaching the, the believers in, in both his word and by his example what it means to remember Jesus Christ risen. That's what he says. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Well, listen to this. In order to rise, you have to die first. In order to rise, you must die first. And here's what Paul is saying. Here's why he's telling him to remember it. He's saying, you must remember it. And here's my example. I suffer hardship. That was his death. I suffer hardship, even to the point of imprisonment as a criminal. But here's the wonderful thing. The word of God is not imprisoned. The truth is, 
For this reason, verse 10, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may obtain salvation. Can I tell you how much every relationship we have on earth would change? If everybody chose to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, died the death so that through him life could come to others. What? Listen, I'm going to get as super practical as I can. I want all children to look at my eyes for a second. Next time one of your brothers or sisters is just being nasty to you. Does that happen in Christian homes? Do sometimes you have a brother or sister that you don't like the way they're treating you? Listen to this. What I'm not saying is that you have to submit yourself to somebody being nasty to you. Talk about it with your parents. But I do want you to hear this. Their nastiness to you, if you respond to them in the same way, is just going to make a problem this big twice as big. Remember, the next time that happens, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That message will be this. Jesus died and rose again. I have to die and step into a new life. If I would do what he told me to do, that is, to bless those who persecute me, to be kind to those who are being mean to me. The fact of the matter is, life would become something very different. Life becomes something very different. Instead of responding with evil to evil, we respond with good to evil. We become the vehicles through which life comes to other people. Now here's the big catch. Everybody say it with me. But who's looking out for? That's the problem. But who's looking out for me? Well, let me just say this as, as gently as I can, as lovingly as I can. If no one else on planet Earth looks out for you, I want you to know that there is one in heaven who is looking out for you. He will see and he will reward. He will see and he will reward. Okay? But please hear this. There is something powerful about what we are called to do and to be as believers. We enter into the death of Christ so that we can enter into the resurrection of Christ. And the fact of the matter is that at the heart of this message, there is this idea, this kernel, that those who die the death do so so that a life can be born in them that will then be a gift to the people around them. That will then be a, a conduit, a pipeline of life for the people around them. Death works in me, Paul said, so that life might work in you. Now, I want you to know what I'm not addressing. In the background, there's all, well, what about, what about abuse? What do I do if someone is, is physically abusing me? That's a different message for a different day, okay? There's, there's times when there's other approaches we have to take. But I want you to know that, that in, in the general attitude of life, the spirit that we have is Jesus rose from the dead. 
And he rose from the dead so that I would have a life that is new in Christ. I'm going to, every once in a while I do this. I, I forgot to flip through this. Every once in a while I feel like it's hard to stay sitting down. My brothers and sisters, do you remember when Jesus hangs on the cross and they offer him a cup of wine? Remember? And he refuses to drink it. You know why he refused to drink it? It was a, it was a, a painkiller, a sedative of sorts. And Jesus knew that in order to bring life to others, he was going to have to endure the full brunt of suffering to the end. Without relief. I, I find this over and over and over again in marriages. The, the, the challenge, the greatest challenge that people have is what we're told here. If we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. And people don't like the idea of enduring. Enduring means staying under it. It means going through it. It means doing the difficult thing and staying there so that life can come through me to someone else. And that just doesn't feel very fair, does it? Just doesn't feel fair. But I want you to know this. Nobody ever claimed that the life of a Christian would be fair. Not in this life. Not in this life. The whole example of Jesus is it's not fair that one should die for the sins of all. It's not fair. There's not a thing about it that's fair. But one was willing to do it so that life could come to others. You see, this is a resurrection passage and it's a resurrection song for this reason. This song is part of this resurrection passage. This statement gets at it. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we endure. Why does it say if we endure? It's if we endure because every cross is voluntary. You don't have to die the death. You don't have to. You can avoid it. You can say no. You can get out of it. You can walk away from it. You can refuse it. But you need to know what you're forfeiting if you do. The promise of the song is this to every believer. Brothers and sisters, if you endure, you will reign with him. Can I just ask you what the flip side of that is? If you do not endure, you will not reign with him. You will not. That's why the next line is, if you deny him, he will deny you. He will. You see, we have this idea that because I'm a Christian, I'm going to rule and reign with Christ. Not necessarily. 
Not necessarily. You'll make it to heaven. But the question of will he reward you is a completely different issue. I want you to know that the message of the resurrection is the most challenging message that has ever been set before mankind. Because the message of the resurrection is 100% contingent upon the willingness of someone to die first. The order is death, then resurrection. Birth can happen before death, but resurrection cannot. Resurrection cannot. What you and I are called to as believers is resurrection life. It's a life that passes through death, willingly goes through death. And when we do, life comes to others. Life comes to others. This is what we have, called, we have been called to. And this is exactly what Jesus did for us. You see, I'm closing with this. I know this is long. The fact of the matter is this. If Jesus had not died on the cross, there would have been no eternal life for any of us. None. None. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. Every single one of us is guilty before God and deserving of eternal separation from God. It is only because one died for our sins. It is only because one took our place on that cross that you and I can receive the forgiveness of sins that gives us a pass to heaven. It's the only way. It's the only way. So if you're here this morning, and that's not your experience, I want you to know that this is the absolute heart of the gospel, and it is the thing that separates the Christian faith from every other religion on planet Earth. There is none other like it. Christianity is not just another religion, one among many. It is a completely different kind. The reason is because Christianity teaches no version at all of doing good or doing better in order to gain a higher life someday. Christianity teaches there is but one hope that you have, and the hope is to cast yourself 100% on the mercy of God. Recognize that in your sinfulness, you are completely lost, and throw yourself upon the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he paid the penalty that you deserve. And ask him for your forgiveness. It's the only hope we have. It's the hope the Christian faith has to offer. And it's different from anything else on planet earth. If that's not yours today, I'm going to ask you to consider the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you. But the other thing I want to do is just to say one last word to those of us who are believers. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the most challenging thing that we will be ever be called to do is to do exactly what Paul said in verse 8. Remember Jesus risen from the dead. You know what he's saying there? He's saying there, 
That is the pattern for your life. He is the one you can never forget. And then what Paul gives next is his personal experience as an example. Remember Jesus risen from the dead, for which I suffer. That's the meaning for all my sufferings. I do what I do because I remember Jesus risen from the dead. If I have to suffer persecution, if I have to be thrown in prison, if I have to pay a price, I do it. Why? I endure it all for the sake of those who are the chosen ones, that they also may obtain salvation through the gospel. I do it for their sakes. I do it for their sakes. Believers, we are not called to live a self-oriented life. We are called to live a life that lays our lives down. Please hear me. The main battle of the day is not political or anything else. The main battle of the day is will this church, will we as believers lay our lives down so that the gospel can be seen and heard by the world around us. It is a lot easier to stand up and assert ourselves and fight for our ideologies than it is to lay down our lives, die the death, and give Jesus to somebody. It is way easier to look your spouse in the eye and determine that you're going to win the argument than it is to be a conduit of God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness to that person. The amazing thing is that when you do it, you actually get to lay down in bed together without a six-foot wall between the two of you. You see, there's a life on the other side. I want to say this, this just to close, to offer you hope. The beauty of the resurrection is, to, is this. Don't, don't forget that death has a life on the other side. And the promise here is, if you endure, believer, if you endure, I promise you, you will reign with him. Do you remember the old hymn, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus? Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Yeah, but I'm tired. Yeah, but my lungs are burning. Yeah, but my spouse is. Yeah, but, yeah, but, die the death. Because there's a life on the other side that will be worth it. It will be worth it. Amen? The resurrection teaches us this powerful truth. Not a comfortable truth, but a powerful truth. It's a powerful truth. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. We're going to close in, in just a moment of prayer. You may be here this morning, and there may be a very very deep personal way in which this message applies to you. 
you may be having the fight of your life with something that is such a torment, is such a frustration. I, I come back to this over and over again because I find that this is usually where it is. It's usually a, a person <laughs> that, that is... That, that issue of forgiveness becomes so deep, so difficult. Sometimes it's someone in your past. Sometimes it's someone in your present. I want to call you this morning to consider the cross and to do so remembering the risen Christ. He's calling you to a completely different sort of life. He's calling you to a life on the other side of death. So you might be here this morning, and this is a struggle for you. And the struggle that you're having is really centered if you clear away all the haze, all the fog, all the questions, all the history, all the hurt. If you clear it all away, there's a very simple question that is at the very center of it all. And the question is, will you take up the cross and step into a resurrection life? very difficult thing. It's a very profound and life-changing thing. Will I step into that life? If you're here this morning and, and I, maybe you're here because it's Resurrection Sunday and this is the thing culturally that we do, I just want you to know that there is a, a version of what we've talked about this morning that for you looks like this. You need to answer one simple question. Will I retain my right to my own life thinking that I'm good enough to get to heaven? Or will I die the death that says, I can't do this by myself. I need to be rescued. I need I need Jesus to save me. Well, the thing for you to do today is to cry out to God and ask for his forgiveness. Lord Jesus, forgive my sin. And if that's you this morning, I implore you to take advantage of this opportunity because you don't know if you'll have another, much less when you'll have another. The second thing I want to ask is, believer, where might you be being called today to step into the resurrection of Jesus that is going to require you to do so through the cross and through the death? Where? There might be a place right now where you are profoundly, deeply challenged it hurts, it's painful, and it's unfair. And the amazing thing is you have to choose it. It won't be forced on you. But you know 
that God would be speaking to you right now and saying, what I would want you to do will require a death, and you're going to have to trust that I'm going to give you a life on the other side. And if there is that battle inside of you right now, I'm asking you to take a moment and to cry out and to just be honest, Lord, everything within me is saying right now, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will. Yours be done. And I want you to know that through the tears of death and a cross, you will come to a place of life on the other side. And it will be worth it. And it will be worth it. Lord, we close this morning celebrating the resurrection. And I do recognize that this is a very sober approach to resurrection this morning. I acknowledge that. But your word teaches us that because of the joy that was set before him, the Lord Jesus endured the cross. Yes, resurrection is a joy, but it's a joy set before us on the other side of the death of the cross. And I just pray today, whether it's a, a child, a young person, an adult, a single, a married couple. Lord, if there is a death that needs to be faced here, I pray that you would bring us through that to the life that is on the other side. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that there is a life on the other side. I want to thank you for the promise of the resurrection, for the promise that if we endure, we will reign with you that there is that promise of life on the other side. And I pray that you would once again speak to our hearts and strengthen our resolve to love you, to serve you, and to walk with you. Lord, if there's anyone in this room this morning that does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that you would cut through any other word that's been spoken and that you would draw their attention straight to the cross of Jesus Christ and that they would understand that message that there is one who had to die for their sin because that is the wages of death. That is what, what sin deserves. The wages of sin is death. And I pray, Lord, that, that we would see the one who died for us in our place and that there would be a crying out to you, Father, forgive me for Jesus' sake. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day to remember your resurrection. Thank you for the joy that we have knowing that Christ is risen from the dead and that because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future, 
Life is worth the living just because he lives. Thank you for that truth today. May we remember throughout this day Jesus Christ risen. And may we glorify your name together. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 I hope that throughout this day you rejoice and you celebrate Christ's resurrection. And if you burn the ham or your spouse drops the... Just remember the cross, all right? And love one another well.